Welcome to the Patriotic Pulpit. Do you remember when the statement was made by Team Biden as they were coming back into the White House, having defeated Donald Trump in the last election, and they would say, the adults are back in charge? Or do you remember when Jill Biden told us in 2020 that decency is on the ballot? We were led to believe by Clan Biden that they would bring modesty, decorum, grand manners back to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But what Dr. Jill did not say, the first family would also bring cocaine too, and likely courtesy of the drug-addicted first son Hunter. And that isn't the only scandal that has broken just in the first five days of July of this month. Court Kirkwood reports in The New American that photos have emerged that depict Hunter smoking crack while driving in Arlington, Virginia, and driving a sports car almost 200 miles per hour on a trip to Las Vegas. And how about the mainstream media? Will the leftist mainstream media force Hunter's parents to answer for the Coke stash? Will they hold the Biden family accountable? Need we ask the question? But beyond that, and more importantly, the drug addict's recent plea deal suggests that he and the Biden mafia will never, ever be brought to justice for the crimes. We know that they will not. That's exactly, the, of course, the way this government is working. Now, the latest trouble for the crack-smoking Biden brat began when someone found an unknown item, quote, unknown item, in the White House library. That's July 2nd. And the New York Post reported it this way. That unknown item required an evacuation. It also required a hazardous materials team from Washington, D.C.'s Fire and Emergency Medical Services. A hazmat team had to be called out to the White House. Isn't that a first? But it wasn't Johnson & Johnson baby powder. It wasn't Arm & Hammer baking soda. It was not gold medal all-purpose flour. It was cocaine, likely Hunter Biden's cocaine. And the press briefing that we saw just recently, just matter of fact, today while we were recording earlier today, they avoided the subject of Hunter. They talked about who it might have left, who who might have brought in there, uh, who might have brought the material into the White House, and Hunter's name was hardly even mentioned. The D.C. firefighters tested it at the scene, and they said initially it is tested positive for cocaine. One firefighter said this: "We have a yellow bar stating." Cocaine hydrochloride. Bag it up, take it out, the firefighter told the hazmat team. So the white powdery substance was found in the residence's library, according to the dispatch call. The Secret Service told the Post that the agency does not comment on an active investigation. Isn't that convenient? Everything's an active investigation. They don't comment on anything, and they decline to comment further. The Post added this, that the authorities which one hopes would include Joe and Jill, but that's a long shot, are now trying to determine how the substance got into the White House after a Secret Service agent found the powder during a routine sweep of the premises. Well, I wonder. Of course, the key suspect is obviously Hunter, who is himself a crack addict. The Post reported this way. Rumors circulated in April that the first son may have been crashing at the White House for a time to avoid being served with court papers by the mother of his love child. Now that opens up more disgusting details of Biden Bunch and the Biden brat. The mother was a stripper, which says a lot about Biden's taste in women. Now, how about this also? 
The cocaine in the library, they say, would not kill anyone. Well, not so with Hunter. Hunter, who could have killed someone two times, once while stoned like a hippie at Woodstock, a second time when he was driving like a race car driver, putting all the public at risk. This is the lifestyle of the rich, the famous, and the spoiled. And all this talk about being involved in the communities, in the black communities, in the poor communities, and for the poor people, all of it is so much empty talk. In the first instance regarding Hunter, he filmed himself smoking crack while driving in a residential neighborhood in Arlington, 2018. Biden was driving on the county's Old Dominion Drive near the Washington Golf and Country Club, showing off a crack pipe in hand on his way to the Dulles Airport. But worse still, less than two months later, he was seen racing to Las Vegas on August 1 when he took a snap of the car's dashboard and it revealed he was going at least 172 miles per hour. That's what the Post reported. And then it was reported this way in the Daily Mail that the pictures were found on Biden's infamous laptop, which also contained messages to multiple women waiting for him to arrive in Sin City for a hot tub party. And here's how the messages ran. And of course, we're going to, we're going to censor some of it here. I don't have a bathing suit, and I really, really wanted to wear a cute bathing suit, one woman named Cheryl wrote to Hunter. But I don't have any money to buy one, so then I'm just going to have to be naked, right? The Vegas party, however, appeared to be more than some of the women expected, with another writing this, Honestly, babe, the problem is you have too many girls there. She added this, I understand you like a lot of girls, that's fine, do one at a time. Well, the Vegas trip appears to have been taking place during the weeks-long bender Hunter Biden admitted to going on during a January 2019 conversation with a hooker, which was caught on video when he forgot to turn off his laptop camera after having sex with her. So what's going to occur during, uh, regarding the cocaine incident? Back to the cocaine incident. No one's going to be surprised if nothing further is said about the White House coke stash. Just as no one is surprised that the brat boy Biden escaped prison time in a felony gun possession charge by pleading guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. What a joke. The deal also permitted Biden to escape serious possible bribery, money laundering charges. He may also have violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act in connection with his many global business ventures, which involved his father. Let's be clear, said Representative James Comer from Kentucky. He's chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He said the Department of Justice's charges against President Biden's son, Hunter, reveal a two-tiered system of justice. Yea, verily. Hunter Biden is getting away with a slap on the wrist when the growing evidence uncovered by the House Oversight Committee reveals the Bidens engaged in a pattern of corruption, not just one time, but a pattern of corruption influence peddling, and possible bribery. And these charges against Hunter Biden and the sweetheart plea deal have no impact on the Oversight Committee's investigation. We will not rest until the next full extent of President Biden's involvement in the family schemes are revealed. End of quote. So to Joe Biden, 
I know you think the American people are way too slow to figure out what is going on, but that is because you are judging all of us by what you know of yourself. Adults are not in charge. No, the narco-traffickers are in charge, which is a type of crime boss. And he spreads his network and enterprise into the White House. Along with the big guy, we have a real drug trafficker right in charge. Little wonder, Joe, that you don't do anything about the border. You're playing your own game with illegal drugs in the border and even in the White House. We'll be back in a moment. Let's talk about the recent Supreme Court decision last week, as a matter of fact, regarding affirmative action. The case involved, of course, affirmative action for college admissions. Affirmative action, of course, has been in place in America since the 1960s, especially during the period of Lyndon Johnson. The Supreme Court just ended affirmative action, saying it is absolutely unconstitutional, looking at it from the 14th Amendment perspective. It is unconstitutional to practice affirmative action. Now, of course, predictably, the left is absolutely losing their minds over it. Joe Biden says that the Supreme Court is not a regular court. Kamala Harris talks about the equal opportunity that people no longer have. The New York Times comes out against it. The left completely loses it regarding affirmative action because affirmative action has been a part of the American culture since the 1960s. What is affirmative action exactly? Well, it is an effort to improve employment and educational opportunities for members of minority groups or for women. Affirmative action began as a government remedy to affect the long-standing discrimination. Now, the key term in that is government remedy. It's a government remedy that tried to remedy the long-standing discrimination against groups that had consisted, and, and the government's policies consist of programs, procedures, and it gives limited preferences to minorities, women in job hiring, admissions and of institutions to higher education and so forth. But basically, affirmative action has absolutely taken over our culture in hiring, in admissions, contracts, labor contracts, uh, loans for poorer side of town, housing, food stamps. We are completely a welfare society. America is a socialistic society, a welfare society. And no one outside of SCOTUS seems to question the validity of welfare and the, and the very concept of welfare. Because affirmative action is actually a form of welfare. It is giving to people what they themselves individually do not deserve. That does not say that anybody's denying that discrimination or discriminatory policies have been practiced by individuals in the past. But affirmative action is actually putting into place another system, actually encoding in law a system of welfare, a system of discrimination. It is a form of welfare. It is giving people what they do not earn. That's what affirmative action does. So let's let's talk about for a moment the Bible and what the Bible has to teach regarding welfare and giving people what they do not deserve. The passage I have in mind is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the context is people who have quit their work because perhaps they expected the coming of the Lord to be right immediately in their day. That would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, 
Paul shows us, the inspired writer here, that the people of Thessalonica, some of them had quit their work in anticipation of the immediate return of the Lord. So here's how Paul tells it. This is from the New International Version. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive, does not live according to the teaching that you have received for us, from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. Now let me stop here. Paul, the apostle, tells us that he did not take advantage of the contribution of the church. That is, he had a right to it. He had a right to the money that they would give him because of his labor in the gospel, and he shows us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But when Paul came to Thessalonica, as he did practice everywhere, he worked with his own hands a secular job, and he tells us the reason for that right here is we didn't, we didn't eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. I want you to look at that key term. It would be a burden to people if Paul simply received their money without working. We did, we did this, he said, not because we don't have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule that the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now he tells us about some of the problems that he's sees there and that he's hearing in Thessalonica, a church that he had established earlier. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Here's a play on words. Such people we command and urge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter do not associate with him in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. All right, let's just summarize some of the ideas here. And this is really the biblical ethic. It's not just a Protestant ethic. It's not just a Puritan ethic, even though that is the case. We'll talk about that in a moment. The American colonies established by Puritans. But this is really a biblical ethic industriousness. Work is seen as a holy endeavor. It's not simply someone that's going to uh, take advantage of other people, take advantage of the work that other people do, someone sitting in their study, someone sitting in their, <clears throat> in their office and doing what they do without working with their hands. And this work ethic is the, what is taught in the Bible from first to last. Listen to the blueprint for living, for example, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 22, verse 29, do you say a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. Proverbs 19, 15, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep. That's the sluggard. And that's the word slothfulness in the King James Version, the sluggard, cast one into a deep sleep. <clears throat> Proverbs 20 and 4, the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. That is, a person who is slothful gives excuses why he doesn't want to work. And then, of course, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, 
officer or ruler, she prepares her food in the summer, gathers her sustenance in harvest. How long will you lie there, thou slugger? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a thief and want like an armed man. Like other common vices in the world, the Bible points out from first to last that laziness is a moral disease. It's a failure of the will. It is a failure to resist temptation. It is a failure to exercise self-control. And like other vices, it enslaves individuals. The final stages of it means that one must be managed as a child. So the New Testament also, if anyone provides not for his own, especially his own household, he is denied the face. He, he is worse than an unbeliever. So let's go back to that text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Several points. Number one, Paul worked. He did it for an example. Here's the apostle had a right to receive money for his labor in the gospel, but he worked to be a model to other people as an example. Number two, he tells you very plainly that when people do not work, they become a burden on other people. That's exactly what has occurred in America with the welfare system. We are overburdened. Those who are working are overtaxed by people who refuse to work. And then if you don't work, he said, don't eat. That is, depend upon your own labor. And if not, he says, that is, if people don't work, he says they become idle and disruptive. Now, does any of this say that we should not have compassion for individuals that are in need or for people who are handicapped who cannot work? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us that we are to be compassionate and giving, but here's the key. That is an individual or a congregational obligation. It has nothing to do with the role of the government. Because what happens is when the government steps in for its government remedy, actually the problem exacerbates. And so what happened, just as an illustration, California, I think it was 1964, in the wake of Lyndon Johnson's Medicaid, Medicare system, and so in the Medicaid system, that is assisting individuals of, in their medical bills in California, I think it was called Medi-Cal. The first year that people signed up for it in California, which I think was 1964, there was 1 million people on Medi-Cal. That's remarkable, 1 million people. But what more is remarkable than that is the very next year, 1965, the number had more than doubled. It was 2.5 million. What would happen? What was going on? Were that many more people in dire need? No. What really happened, as we all know, is that people realized that when there is free money handed out, then those programs grow. They absolutely exponentially grow, and people get in on the program. And that's what happened here. They become idle and disruptive. And that's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3. So the work ethic creates reliable patterns of behavior. People who are dependent upon their own initiative, own initiative. It creates integrity. People honor their contracts. They honor what their word tells them that they will do. People are good to their word. It causes people to be satisfied with simple things. Not only so, but the free market economics has simply grown out of the work ethic 
that the Bible teaches. It teaches responsibility. It teaches individual initiative. What happens, on the other hand, when the work ethic leaves and evaporates in a country? Well, we're seeing it right now in America. We're seeing that the work ethic has disappeared. We're seeing, therefore, that responsibility has eroded. We're seeing that poverty has risen. We're seeing that dependency, government dependency, continues to rise. And the chief cause of it is because the government has been involved in a program that is absolutely, teetotally unconstitutional. That's what not only the Bible teaches, but that's what our founding fathers taught as well. So when we come back from break, we'll talk about Plymouth Colony for a moment. We're coming back, working our way back to the Supreme Court decision that ended affirmative action. And we'll do that in just a few moments. We're talking about the Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action for college admissions. And then we're broadening our perspective to consider the entire welfare system. Before we continue on that track, if you want to support the program, you can go to American Liberty with Bill Lockwood. There's a website there and it has a button that you might be able to uh, that you might be able to contribute if you wish to do so, then you can go to that bud- button and contribute. The radio show is found on the Spotify app. You can also go to uh, the Amazon Music app as well. The radio show airs in Wichita Falls. It airs in Abilene. It airs in Lubbock. In Wichita Falls, it's News Talk 1290 or FM 930. And so the radio show, 11 o'clock, Saturday mornings in Wichita Falls, Sunday evenings, 5 o'clock in Abilene and in Lubbock. And so you can support the program if you will. And you can, it's called Patriotic Pulpit. You can go find it on Amazon Music app or also on the Spotify app. Now, think about socialism for just a moment, which is really the welfare system. The welfare system is nothing more or less than socialism. It is of interest that our founding fathers, when they came to this country, they tried socialism. They tried the socialistic welfare system, both at Plymouth Colony, which was founded in 1620, and at Jamestown, which was founded in 1607. Both places tried the welfare system and found that it was a dismal failure. Now, the Mayflower Compact, Plymouth Colony, 1620, that didn't arise out of the Enlightenment, but it worked because of the religious character that was engrafted into it. The Puritan people who founded Plymouth Colony, they gave us the first religious constitutions. They gave us the first regular election by secret ballot. They gave us the Federalist principle. They separated the state from the church. They kept the state out of the church, that means... They also insisted upon the autonomy of local congregations. All of that had a major impact, a formative impact, on the founding of America and how we were going to manage our politics. But one of the most important things that our founders learned was the work ethic, which we looked at from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, equality under, under the law. And it made it possible for the capital spirit to survive and to thrive. So John Winthrop was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. William Bradford came to be a governor later, and he was one of the original settlers. He became governor in 1621. And they tried what they called the communal system, as I pointed out, that was the welfare system. Just as Jamestown 
did also earlier in 1607. Now, what they did was they had a, a stock, a stock a play, or a place where they kept the food, a warehouse where they kept food. And they would put the food in the warehouse, all the grain that they would glean out of the fields. And then when people needed it, then the government system itself would distribute to those who had need. What happened? It was a dismal failure. It was so bad, as a matter of fact, that they almost starved in both places, both at Jamestown and Massachusetts Bay Colony. So finally, at Jamestown, John Smith took the bull by the horns and he led the people out of it. And he, he made this comment. He said, when our people were fed out of the common store and labored jointly together, glad was he who could slip from his labor, slumber over his task, he cared not how. Nay, the most honest among them would hardly take so much true pains in a week, but now for themselves they will do it in a day. That is after they have installed the work system. What happened? Well, the welfare system was, as I pointed out, a dismal failure. And he said the people were slipping from their labors. They were slumbering over the work. They didn't care how even the honest people, they were slipping from their labor. Because when you have the free distribution of monies or, or benefits, then that's what happens. And that's what affirmative action is. It's the free distribution of benefits, whether it be a college admission, whether it be a job application, whether it be the military. That's what affirmative action is. It is, it is giving something for nothing. And that's what our founders learned at Jamestown. Now, the same thing, just to the T occurred at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. William Bradford realized that they were about to starve on that welfare system, and so they shifted to a system of private property. And he said this in reflection. This had very good success. It made all hands very industrious, so much as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by means that they, even the governor could use or any other person could use. Now, it's true that they had private property. They had had private property in the, in the colony. But there were so many wage and price controls, just as we know in America, that they were, they were being fed out of the common barn and to make private property absolutely pointless. Now, what has all this to do with what we're talking about today? Well, let's go back to that Supreme Court decision. Affirmative action, whether it be in, in money that is given welfare system, whether it be in college admissions, whether it be in military admissions, whatever it may be, it is giving people what they have not earned. And the Students for Fair Admissions, the recent Supreme Court decision, upheld the equality of the law. But the left, as I pointed out, is absolutely losing its mind concerning it. So here's an article from Charles Blow. Charles Blow is an opinion columnist in the New York Times. The title of it reads, The Supreme Court didn't put racism on a leash. It granted it license. So here's Blow's comments. There's a recurrent theme in American history. The clawing back of hard-won progress. And the Supreme Court last week used the most specious of arguments to do so with affirmative action. In the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that affirmative action, in this case, the use of race 
as a factor in university admissions cannot stand because, quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Now, Blow says this, but of course, neither the court nor America itself has any desire to eliminate all of it. Reading that line was like having someone spit in my face. What the court was really signaling was that it intended to let racial imbalances born of both historical and current injustices be locked in and go unchecked. All right, let's stop there for a moment. So what's Blow's problem here? Well, in the first place, the entire premise of the left is this, that we are still a racist country. We have always been a racist country. Slavery is all about racism and racism through the Jim Crow years. I'm not denying that racism has existed, but their premise is that it continues on and on today, even right now. It doesn't matter. It just never stops. Whether or not we've elected a black president, whether they're black mayors, whether they're black governors, whether they're black generals, it doesn't matter. We're still a racist nation. We can never atone that is what the left believes. We can never atone for the racism. And so there's, there's no atonement. You just have to continue on and on and on promoting people, even, even though they're not qualified, promoting people to positions. And that's exactly their premise. And we're still racist. So number two, what's the answer? What's the answer if we're still racist? Well, ingrain and encode racism into law. Because if you're going to put an admission policy into a college and it is backed by the force of law that says, all right, this college must admit so many percentage of blacks, so many percentage of Hispanics into its system, regardless of the grades they have made in high school, regardless of their qualifications, then what we have done is we've encoded racism into law. And remember what that passage in 2 Thessalonians said? When that takes place, when that takes place, you create idleness, you create chaos in society, and that's exactly what we have in our society because we have ingrained racism right into, encoded racism into law. So affirmative action. This is going on with Blow's comments from the New York Times. He says, however imperfect is at least an acknowledgement of racial, racialized imbalance and injury and attempt to lessen their effects. Well, I will say this. No one denies that racism has occurred in the past. No one denies that people have discriminated on the basis of race in the past. But I deny that it is the case today, and I deny that it is systemic. But Blow goes on to say the court with this decision was washing its hands of racial discrimination that is not overt and conscious and codified. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Let's analyze Blow's statement. He's telling us, all right, we don't have racism that is overtly practiced, but it's covert. He even tells us it's unconscious. That's absolutely incredible. In other words, it has to be racist. In order for the left to progress at all, the country has to be racist. We have to consider it to be racist. It has to continue to be racist. Even if, if you're unconscious of it, you're racist. So I'm racist. Every white person is racist because, because 
Oh, below says we are. And that's the codified system that we have. Even if it's unconscious, this is absolutely, absolutely incredible. Well, we'll think about more of that in just a moment. We'll take a break. We'll be right back in a moment. There are two stories that are coming out of California that are absolutely eye-popping. They're just stunning. One of them involves child support, and the other one involves public urination. So let's talk about the first one for a moment. That is child support. The California Reparations Task Force is asking the state legislature to eliminate interest on past due child support as well as any black child support debt for black residents in the state. Now, I told you about encoding racism right into law. This is exactly what they're trying to do. They're encoding racism. That is, black men particularly that owe child support, they're saying we're going to release them. Not white men, but black people. Black men, we're going to release them from child support, the pain of debt on their child support. The final report was released last week. And the group claimed discriminatory laws have torn American families apart, African-American families. And that one of the effect of the harms caused by the disproportionate amount of African-Americans who are burdened with child support debt. So let's think about that for a moment. Disproportionate amount of African-Americans who are burdened with child support debt. Let's just shift gears for a moment and think about the incarceration rates. The incarceration rates of blacks are much higher than any segment of the population. But is it because of white racism? No, it is not. No one can show that. As a matter of fact, Heather McDonald at the Manhattan Institute has written a whole book on it showing very clearly that the reason that that is the case is because the rate of crime in the African-American community, particularly among the African-American men, is much higher than any other segment of society. So exactly it is in child support and the child support debt. The rate of children who are born out of wedlock are much higher in the African-American communities. So what does California want to do? They want to eliminate the burden of debt that the blacks are having in California because more blacks are burdened with that debt than other segments of society. Well, why is that the case? That's the case for the same reason that we have more blacks are incarcerated than whites. People are afraid to talk about it, but this is what's happening in our country. And how is that the case? Why is that the case? That is the case, once again, we go back to the welfare system. We have created an entire society of people who are not working, they're creating mischief, And this is the results of it. But instead of addressing the results and removing the causes of that, the welfare system, we want simply, at least they want it in California, they want to add to the problem. And so that's what's going on right now. So it is also claimed that 10% interest that the state charges on back child support hinders their ability to finance further education, attend job training, find employment, and maintain housing because of the legal consequences of not paying such debt. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to say this, but whose problem is it if I go out and I impregnate a a woman, then whose responsibility is it? 
It's my responsibility. It is my responsibility to do so, to take care of that child. But what California is saying, no, you don't have responsibility. If you're black, you don't have responsibility. Let me ask this question. Do you think that will cause the, the, the out-of-wedlock births, out-of-wedlock pregnancies to rise or to fall in California? Well, you know what the answer is. It's very simple what the answer is going to be. You know it's going to take place. So if individuals want to go to college, if they want to have job training, if they want to find employment, if they want to maintain housing, then they need to exercise self-control. I remember one school board meeting that I was attending several years ago, and a woman sat behind me, a black woman, and she said, well, you know what, if you're going to make us pay for our children, that is the children that we have out of wedlock, then or she said, if you're going to make us, make us, rather, she said, if you're going to make us have those children, that is, forbid us from murdering the children with abortion, then you're going to have to help take care of them. No, there's another answer. And the answer is obvious to anyone who looks at the issue, and that is, no, the other option is, you exercise self-control, and you don't get yourself pregnant. That is, exercise self-control, don't have its sex out of wedlock. That's the answer to the question, not, well, I'm going to go have the children out of wedlock, and then you're going to help pay for it. Now, this is what's taking place in society. Now, that's one story taking place right now in California. Now, there's another story. This is absolutely, to me, it is shocking, public urination. California Reparations Task Force, again, calls to ban the police from enforcing public urination laws. Have you read this? California's Reparations Task Force wants state lawmakers to ban the arrest and prosecution of people who violate laws against public urination and other public disorder offenses. That's what the task force has said in the final report released last week. The call to end public enforcement of laws, including those that prohibit public urination, is among the official policy recommendations listed in the final report, and it has 40 chapters it runs over 1,000 pages. A signification proportion or significant proportion of the law of the law enforcement contact with public relates to low-level, nonviolent offenses. And thus, for example, the law enforcement is frequently tasked, reads the report, with enforcing public disorder offenses such as illegal camping, public intoxication, disorderly conduct, minor trespass, and public urination. Although the subject of these contracts are often experiencing homelessness, mental health crisis, or both, the responding officers typically possess neither training nor expertise in working with these vulnerable populations. And that's the report. Now, that's absolutely stunning, isn't it? So they're saying, basically, people camping on the streets, we're not going to, we're not going to enforce laws against public urination, public camping. Once again, Will that exacerbate the problem or will it curtail the problem? You know very well it will exacerbate the problem. This is one reason people are leaving, fleeing California. But don't bring your California laws to Texas. Don't bring your California laws elsewhere. Well, this is, this is the problem across the country. And it's another example, once again, of affirmative action applied to a different situation. 
It's interesting that the report stopped short of giving an exact dollar amount it wants for descendants of slaves because now they want to talk about reparations who live in the state, though it makes clear the task force thinks the dollar amount should be significant. It also includes dozens of policy recommendations, including the ban on prosecution of public disorder offenses. So not only not only public urination, but disorder, public disorder ban on enforcing the laws against public disorder. You see, what's happening across the country is absolutely stunning. And that is, instead of enforcing law, enforcing public order, making it a place safe for everyone to live, no, instead of that, they're simply exacerbating the problem, they're simply throwing gasoline on the fire, and so therefore we have the problems continuing in California, will continue to continue. So whether it be reparations, whether it be public prostitution, whether it be public camping, public urination, balking a sidewalk, all of these things, these crimes will not be prosecuted. And so what's going to happen in California? People are going to continue to leave California. It's almost as if they cannot figure out what's causing the problem. Well, former San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, parents were part of a domestic terrorist weather underground group, by the way, just like Bill Ayers, promised during his 2019 campaign he would not prosecute those kind of cases. And that's exactly what's taking now in California, taking place right now in California. But it's taking place across the country, and the left, if we want to enforce law, we want to enforce equality, they absolutely lose their minds pertaining to it. That's what's happening right now. Another example of affirmative action absolutely gone wild and gone wrong. So let's go back to that 2 Thessalonians passage in chapter 3. The Bible not only gives us a roadmap to heaven, but it also gives us a blueprint for living. It shows us how to live in a society with people. It shows us how a society operates smoothly. And so that's why the Bible teaches, if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. On the other hand, the whole system of welfare the giving people what they do not deserve, all of that, whether it be benefits, whether it be, whether it be college admissions, whether it be giving them, a, giving them a buy on welfare checks, whatever it may be, all of that simply creates a society of people who are disrespectful, who are ugly, that is ugly in their actions, and causes society in a, to be completely disrupted. That's exactly what Paul put in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3.